Let's pray once more. Our God and our Father, this is amazing grace that we've just read. That all by your grace, all by your undeserved favor, your smile upon us, that you would cause us not only to be with you, not only to be forgiven of sin, not only to be welcomed by you, but to dwell in your house with all of its myriad pleasures and to dwell in your house forever. Amazing, amazing. I'm stunned afresh by the infiniteness of your gift given to us in your son. So I pray now, we, we are finite, you are the infinite, we are the created, you are the creator. Will you please send his spirit to us now afresh? Cause your word to be clear to us, cause us to understand it. But more than that, will you cause it to dwell richly within us? Will you Will you have your way with our wills, with our hearts, with the, our innermost parts? Will you please have your way with us now, O Holy Spirit? Please work. Please do a supernatural work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to the final phrase in David's famous psalm, Psalm 23. David exults once again, and this time that he will dwell in the house of the Lord, Yahweh, forever, forever. He's not there now, I'm convinced. Right now, he says, I'm in the middle of it, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and it ain't pretty. My enemies are numerous and fierce, but Yahweh is bigger. Yahweh is fiercer in his steadfast love. So I will go home, David says. I'm confident of that. And my home is where my shepherd is. There's deep meaning here in this last phrase. So I'd like to look more closely at the passage, this last phrase of the psalm. And then I want to consider this morning what David considers to be home. And then lastly, I want to apply what we find here to three of the most important spheres in all of life. Well, the footnote in the ESV for verse 6, is probably the more accurate rendering. It could be rendered, I shall return, I shall return to dwell at home in the, in the house of the Lord. The, the, the root word here is often translated as return or even repent sometimes. David will return home. Home being the house of the Lord. Not his own house, but the tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem. But God uses the physical things to show us the things that are even more real than the physical, things more real than the things that we can see and touch. And David knows that the temple is like a, like a 3D model of his real home, like a, like a, a, a flannelgram. Is that what you call it? A, a, a flannel, you know, what we use in Sunday school, a, a flannelgram of the real thing. Um, the temple was not just a place of sacrifice to Yahweh, it was intentionally constructed as a replica of the Garden of Eden by God's own instruction. 
A few details here. Adam and Eve were expelled from east of Eden, um, Genesis 3.24, and the entrance to the tabernacle was, or the temple was always situated to the east. Then within the temple, there's a great lampstand constructed like an almond tree to remind God's people of the tree of life, the tree of life. And the, the, this lamp had seven lamps on it corresponding to the seven days of creation. There were wood carvings in the temple everywhere with shapes of lush fruit carved into the wood everywhere in the temple. This is discussed in 1 Kings chapter 6, just like in the garden. And then another detail, in, in the center of the garden, there was another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and when Eve touched it, she died. And in the same way, in the holy of holies in the temple was the ark, and inside of the ark was placed the law, and those who touched the ark died too. There's more details. The, the way back to Eden was guarded by two angels, two cherubs with flaming swords, Genesis 3.24. And thus it is no coincidence that there were two cherubim constructed over the mercy seat, their wings overshadowing it as if guarding it, Exodus 25.17-21. For it was in that place that God said he would speak to Moses just as Adam had walked and talked with God so freely in the garden, Exodus 25. 22. And there's another detail. Eden had a river flowing out of it, Genesis 2.10. And so does Herod's temple and Ezekiel's vision of a renewed temple, uh, pictures of a river flowing out of it. And then lastly, one of those details that's so obvious to observers that it's often easy to miss, that Eden actually had three parts. There was Eden itself, and then Genesis 2.10 says that that water, that stream of water flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So that somehow Eden and the garden are two separate places, Genesis 2.10. And then outside the garden, which was fed by Eden, you had the rest of creation that Adam and Eve were to exercise dominion over. And in the same way, at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, which then led to a second section, the Holy Place. And then outside of the holy place was the outer court, picturing the rest of creation. The point, God's glory was to so flow out of the holy of holies and what happened there and, and then provide for God's people. And it was in that, that second place where the bread of the presence was in the holy place. And then having, having feasted on God's lavish provision, God's people were to go out and have dominion over the rest of the world. God's glory was to cover all of the world as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. All of that to say this, Eden, I'm convinced, was the first temple. Eden was the first temple, the, the place where, where Adam and Eve could walk and, and talk with God and, and, and just be in his presence and enjoy his pleasures forevermore. And so the, the, the physical temple is only an approximation, uh, a 3D uh, template of the real thing. And so as David says, I, I, I long to go back to the temple. I, I long to go back home into the presence of God. He longs for more than a return to a physical location, though that's certainly part of it. He longs to be in the presence of Yahweh, the gracious lover of his soul, just like Adam and Eve. He longs to go home, not just back to a temple, but back home to Eden where he belongs, where we all belong. He longs to dwell in the presence of Yahweh. And this is because 
As he would say in Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9 later, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, they take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. David knows that he's a black sheep. He knows that he doesn't deserve it, but he takes refuge in Yahweh because he knows that those who know that they're black sheep and who take refuge in him, that they drink from that river that flows from Eden, and when they drink of that water, they find life forevermore dwelling in the presence of Yahweh, the good shepherd. But first, but first, the power of death must be broken. First, the power of death must be broken. And so we keep reading our Bibles and we come to the point where Jesus stands outside the tomb of his friend, Lazarus. And Jesus, the original text said, snorted. Snorted. The the English translation says weep. Jesus wept outside the tomb. But the original word there, we really don't have a good word for it in English. Because it... It's, it's, it's like a, a grievous, righteously angry indignation at the consequences of evil, that there even is a valley of the shadow of death. It was as if Jesus, when he looked into Lazarus' tomb, it was as if he was looking into every tomb, into every morgue, into every tear, into every pain, into all the effects of evil in this world, all the death. And he said, in love, no more. No more. And yet, in that moment, it was as if the devil sat over the tomb and said, okay then, come and get him. Come and get him. And Jesus said, I accept. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it was from that point that all of Jesus' enemies surrounded him. And he himself walked through the valley of the shadow of death first, willingly for us. And the devil said, okay, so then I will finish you. So Jesus died on his cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and then he was raised from the dead. The resurrection was proof that Jesus' life was perfect, that he alone deserves to stand before God because he had done all things well. He had done all things well. Thus, Jesus would go on to say, Jesus would go on to say that, that he must go away He must go away, so he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, finally, finally, having been risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, the way to Eden was reopened. The way to Eden was opened again. Thus I'm convinced those two angels sitting there watching the disciples were the very same two angels that were assigned to block the way back to Eden. And now they have nothing to do in Acts 1 except lean on their swords and tell the disciples, what are you staring at? Why are you staring into heaven? Your Lord, he's coming back the same way that he went. Our work is done. Yours is just beginning. Best get to work. So Jesus ascends and he said, it was good that I go away because then I would give you my spirit And Paul describes it this way, that those who are in Christ, who have believed in Christ, are sealed, sealed with his spirit. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. 
And the Spirit serves as our guarantee, our down payment, God's earnest money for the day that we will walk in Jesus' exodus ourselves, that we will re-enter Eden, that we will be with Him forever. The Spirit preaches this to us. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. And what is that glorious inheritance? We read about it in the book of Revelation. And when we read the book of Revelation, we come back to the restored new Eden, the new Jerusalem. But John says in Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus himself. All of this to say this, that Jesus is both the way home and he is home. Jesus is the temple of God. This is why Jesus would tell the disciples and why he was accused at his, at his uh, trial, his mock trial before his crucifixion, why he was crucified for his very statement that I will tear down this temple and three days later I will raise it back up again. Because the physical temple was only a picture of the actual thing, Eden itself, Jesus himself. Jesus is the house of the Lord. Jesus is home, and Jesus himself is the way home. He is the sacrifice for sin once for all, and he is the light and the life that we were all made to enjoy forever. Forever. Okay, so, so what do we do about this? What do we do about this? Well, As we have often asked throughout Psalm 23, the first question we must ask is, how do I get into David's place with him? How do I get into the place where I can have any right to join uh, David with this hope and this confidence that I will return home, that that I may return home and live with this hope? And the only way that we can do that is by faith, by faith in Jesus, anyone who trusts in him, Jesus's righteousness to stand before God is given to him or her. When we trust in Jesus, we may then have confidence, not on ourselves, but on the amazing grace of God that I will stand before God accepted, welcomed, and that Jesus said that he goes before me, goes to heaven to prepare a place for me in that home, and he said that for me. He said that for me. Jesus is the home. Jesus is the way home. Jesus does everything. Jesus is everything. And this is why it is all by faith. So the first thing that we must do in applying Psalm 23 is have faith. Have faith in the greater David, Jesus, our way home. But secondly, secondly, we must then ask, okay, so how does this apply then for us Christians? For those of us who are in Christ, how do we walk in David's footsteps here? So first we must ask, well, what is the house of the Lord then today in this age, between the ages, in this, in this moment in time right now? And it is, of course, his body, Jesus' body. So at one point in 1 Corinthians 
um, Paul says that our bodies, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the rest of the New Testament speaks of the church as the body of Christ, the church. Not our bodies, but the church is the body of Christ where God's Spirit dwells. So as Paul writes, and, and, and note here that in 1 Corinthians 3, every you here is plural. Every you here is plural. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? You all. Texans have an advantage here. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple? And that God's temple dwells in y'all. God, excuse me, that God's spirit dwells in you all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, you all are that temple. Therefore, the first, the first application of this psalm is to be at the place where the feast of this Lord occurs, in the house of the Lord. And in the, to be in the house of the Lord today is to be in Christ by faith and then to be among God's people among God's people. To return home right now, to, to be home means to be among God's people. God's people are, if you will, the promised land, the manifestation of the promised land today, the church. So this means that especially, especially we must be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, that is with God's people worshiping him. Because it is in worship among the people of God that our hearts are trained to exult and love and delight in God as David does here. There is no more powerful force on the face of the earth to train you and to train me to exult like David, to see God as David does and to, to delight in God as David does than what we do here on Sunday morning. Be here on the Lord's day. Now, this takes faith. It takes faith to see past, you know, the disobedient sound system and the fact that we meet in an industrial park, you know, and to see, and, and to, to see past many human things. It takes faith to see what cannot be seen and to see that this is the house of the Lord, as we just sang, but it's not this place. It is y'all. We are the house of the Lord where God dwells by his Spirit. It's hard to see sometimes. <laughs> hard to see. Therefore, we engage, we go home, we engage with the people of God by faith. By faith. Therefore, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 3 then, take care how you treat this house. Take care how you treat this house. That is, the people of this house. Do you know what the quickest way is to grieve the Holy Spirit? The, the quickest and fastest way to grieve the Holy Spirit is not committing that big-ticket sin that, you know, in your life, whatever your big-ticket sin is, it's, it's not that. It's not that. The, the Holy Spirit loves, and, and is, or at least is very content to dwell in souls that smell like dirty, musty taverns. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is okay with that. Um, because that's where God's glory shines the brightest, in the darkness of such places. But the quickest way to grieve the Holy Spirit is to walk around among God's house, among God's people, in a self-willed way, imposing your will on others, elevating your own personal opinions to the level of the gospel. 
because the house of the Lord is in us. The house of the Lord is in us. We are living stones created to fit together by God's design as the place where the Lord sets his feast for his people and where his people learn to exult in him. So Paul says, take care. Don't get in the way of that. Don't tear down what God died to build. Take care. Take care that you don't, out of conceit or, or arrogance, provoke one another and activate the other person's conceit and arrogance and turn this place, God's house, into a den of envy. Don't do that, Paul says. Instead, walk by the Spirit, which means to walk in humility with one another in grace-giving love. And as we do this, as we do this, here is the miracle. Here's the miracle. When a people of God humble themselves like this and and set themselves to be together, worshiping God and, and set to define their relationships with one another on the very fact that we are the house of God, oh, a miracle happens. The Spirit works in this, and then the, the church becomes more than a church. The church becomes a little outpost of Eden in this dark world. You're not setting out to do that, but that's what happens. God creates little pockets, little outposts of heaven. And he does that not through great tactics, not through following you know, the latest and greatest fad among famous pastors, but by living in joyful humility with one another, joy in God and gracious humility to one another. And the Spirit works in that and creates little Edens all over the place. That's glorious. It's weird to the watching world to see it. What ha- what, where did this come from? Good question, let me tell you. <laughs> and it ain't me. <laughs> so, we are home for now. We are home. But that's all by grace. It's all by grace. Which leads us to another application. That The first was about the church, about us all, but there's another application here in the area of parenting, the area of parenting. We do what we want to do because we want to do it. (laughs) That's why we do what we do. So, so much of parenting is therefore shaping the heart of the child to want what they should want. So much of parenting is not about giving more information, but shaping the heart to exult in God, to desire what it should want the most, that is God. So it is crucial to not just, in parenting, bring a correct punishment for misbehavior, although that's a big part of it, but also to point out the central truth of this psalm. The central truth of this psalm being, you know, son, you think that you need another cookie. (laughs) You think that you need more screen time. You think that you need to stay up later. You think you need this or that, that you really want. But you think that's true, but it's not. What you really need is grace. What you really need is grace. What you really need is the God of grace. Now, you don't know what that means yet, son. You're too small to even understand what the word is, but I'm going to tell you that anyway, so that when you do understand it, you will remember. You will remember and you'll see that this is true, that what you need most is grace, way more than you need anything else. Anything else. 
And the good news is, kid, that there's a Lord, a shepherd, a king, a lion who is a lamb, who graciously gives, lavishes upon us grace overflowingly to all who would ask. It's there simply for the asking. C.S. Lewis put it more eloquently than I can in his, in his book, Mere Christianity. One of the brothers mentioned this quote in the, the men's Bible study this past week. C.S. Lewis writes, It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. There are no personalities anywhere else. Until you have given yourself to him, you will not have a real self. But there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality. The first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, it will come when you are looking for him. When you are looking for him. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find, in that long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, look for grace, and you will find him, and with him, everything else. Or as David even more eloquently put it in Psalm 37, Seek the Lord first, and he will give you the desires of your heart. <laughs> you think you need this other thing, but what you need is grace. And when you have grace, then you get everything else anyway. A pretty good trade, kid. <laughs> right there is the core of parenting. Right there is the goal of parenting, to communicate this, to shape according to this reality. So in other words, what you really need, kid, is grace. Seek grace, and you will find it, and then with it, you will find everything else, including home. So lastly, we must turn, as we think about this, from the beginning of life to its end, to its end. In the movie about Mr. Rogers, the children's TV show host, he said that death is a human experience. Death is a human experience, and therefore, it should be welcomed as any other human experience. And there is some wisdom in this. There is some wisdom in this. Um, there is love, there is comfort in this, but it is insufficient. For we must have more than comfort. We must have more than comfort when we face our final moments. We need hope. We need hope as we walk through the valley of the shadow of actual death. So what is that hope? Well, the only hope that we have is what theologians call the active obedience of Christ. The 
active obedience of Christ. Him giving up himself to the cross, that was his passive obedience. Dying for our sins, giving himself over, laying himself out to take upon himself all of the condemnation and judgment that we deserve. That is his passive obedience. But what his actual, his active obedience is, is living all of his life perfectly as proved by his resurrection. That he has done all things well. His active obedience performed on our behalf is crucial. Because when death approaches, death approaches, we will be at our weakness, at our weakest. And it will be at that moment that hell will release its hounds. We heard about the hounds of heaven last week. Well, the hounds of hell will come in those moments. And their names are condemnation and fear. Condemnation of what we've done wrong and regret and, and, and fear Fear, they, they will howl and they will bark that you don't deserve to stand before God on the other side of death. They will howl and they will bark that you will not endure God's judgment. Look at you. And yet David knows that the hounds of heaven named goodness and steadfast love will ride harder and bark louder, barking to us that Christ obeyed for us in our place. They will bark and they will howl that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Why? Because Jesus obeyed in our place. He did more than die for us. He lived for us as our substitute. And so this is how you and I will glorify him in our final days and in our final moments, by trusting in him, in his death for us and in his life for us by trusting that his righteousness will be robed around us and that is what we will wear to the judgment seat of God and that is all that God will see as he judges us perfectly righteous wearing a righteousness not our own but that we possess all the same accomplished for us perfectly by our good shepherd so in those final days, the way that we glorify him in those final moments is by leaning into him. The way you give God glory in your death is by resting within the warm folds of his robe of righteousness, trusting in him, trusting in him as your only hope in life and death. This is the, the application for all of us. The application is to feast upon Christ now in the moments that we have now. We feast on Christ now on his goodness and on his steadfast love, especially on the Sabbath. Especially on the Sabbath, so that in those final moments, in those final moments, very little will need to be said. We feast upon him now so that when we most need it, we're not grasping at straws. We have it close at hand. And we can hear the hounds of heaven baying for us, calling and preaching to us by the Spirit. Oh, he is good and he is full of steadfast love to you. And those voices will be louder than anything hell can belch out at us. One of my heroes of the faith is J. Gresham Machen. I may have told this story before, but though he was sick, he accepted a, an invitation to preach in the Dakotas. And while he was there, he became sick and was on his deathbed. 
And his final words to a close friend were by cable, and they were simply this, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. J. Gresham. But with it, all the hope in the world. All the hope in the world. Because on the one hand, death is natural to us, but that's only because it is so common. But it is ugly. Death is ugly because it should not be. We're meant to live. And God, for the sake of his glory, wants that life for us more than we do. And so Jesus Jesus wept at the, the tomb of Lazarus and willingly went to the cross for us and was risen from the dead for us and lived for us and now reigns for us and prepares a place for us and does all for us that we may live with him forever so that when we finally meet him in the heavenly places, it says that the 24 elders around the throne take their crowns off and lay them at Jesus' feet because they say, oh my goodness, all of this glory, all of this pleasure, it is all by your grace. Praise your name forevermore. What will we need in those moments? More than anything else, we will need grace. We need grace as much as a small child needs grace. And that grace will come. I don't know how I will die. I don't know how you will die. But I only know that in those moments, the hounds of heaven will come and they will follow us. And God will provide grace in those moments to die to his glory, to die in hope, to die in faith. To die in faith that even as I face my enemies, my enemies of of, of guilt and death, and those enemies long to devour me, but they can't. And in their presence, though I come into their very presence, my Lord sits a lavish table before me, and that table is made of Christ himself. He is my bread of life. He is the blood that cleanses me from all of my sins, and he is the one who has obeyed in my place so that I may come before God, that I may walk through this valley and split it open. Split it open as I open the doors back to Eden and God's glorious light fills that valley and I exit that valley into his glorious pleasures forevermore. This is what we hope in. David was God's anointed one and we are his anointed ones by faith. This is what we hope in, that God never leaves his anointed ones in the grave. All those he receives, he raises from the dead. And so even while we face death, we may do so in confidence in the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness that gives us uh, access to him forever. And robed with that, we will be escorted into his house and we will enjoy him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And at every point, for for length of days, for length of days, every step of the way, you will normalize. You will normalize. You you will say, oh, this level of glory is is awesome. And And then that will become your new norm. And then you'll wake up, so to speak, the next day. And the next day, there will be new pleasures, new glories to explore forever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen.
All through Jesus. All through Jesus. So what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things but praise your name? (laughs) What then shall we do about these things except enjoy them? What then shall we do then about these things but walk through life with, with a jolly confidence, a jolly confidence that our Savior, our Shepherd, He's got us. What then shall we do about these things but walk with a certain hope feeding on Christ every step of the way, feeding on Christ with the people of God, getting a foretaste of Eden right here among the people of God. What what shall we do but enjoy him and look forward to his coming deliverance? And what then shall we do in our final moments but, but simply trust in him? Trust in his righteousness, one for us, What then shall we do to glorify him in those final moments but to smile at his coming deliverance? Christian, it's going to take all eternity for you and I to understand how gracious this God is to us. And that'll be enough. (laughs) That'll be enough. So we look forward to that day. We trust in that day. And we walk together towards that day as a people, as his temple, the house of the Lord. Let's pray now for faith and grace to do just that. Our God and our Father, I pray that you would help our faith. We believe, but help our unbelief. Grant us to walk in hope. Grant us to walk by your Spirit with one another and with hope in you. You are amazing in your goodness. You are awesome in your steadfast love to us. Grant us to walk, by jo- walk in joy in you. You are our hope. You are our life. You are our light. You are our everything. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the benediction. (laughs) You've just proclaimed your future victory over all of your greatest enemies, even death itself. We've just sang that. We've just celebrated that. So Christian, go resting in that. Go resting in that and go proclaiming it. Go proclaiming it to the world. This is news worth proclaiming the world over. Go go, go gossiping about it. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen.